Everybody doing well? They're already asking questions about the chronological one-year Bible this next year. We're not going to be doing that this year in here, but uh, I will say this. If you've finished and uh, want to read through in the one-year chronological Bible, we have a few that we can sell you. Um, we just sell them to you what we got them. They're $15, which is a little cheaper than you can get them at Lifeway or other places. Um, but And we do have, do we have any large print left? We may have one large print left if we like large print. But it, this, the chronology, the difference between this and what we read is this goes from what they best can put together is from the beginning to the end of the Bible, like a story. And so you'll have dates written above it in there. Uh, like, for instance, just in reading Genesis this week, they put some of the genealogy from First Chronicles into the reading. Okay, And so... Where you'll really notice it is like in the life of Jesus, it tries to put them chronologically in there, and so you're not you might read parts of all four gospels in one day because that's the way it kind of went chronologically. In the life of David, when you have a David incident and then you have a psalm that relates to that incident, something like that. And so we won't be talking about this on Wednesday nights, but that doesn't mean you can't uh, read through it. All right. Let me ask just a question since we are uh, at 2011. How many of you read through the Bible last year? All right. Now let me keep your hands up. How many of you keep them up if it was your first time to do that? Isn't that good? Doesn't it feel good to have done that? I mean, I was reading this week about New Year's resolutions, and for some reason lots of churches have decided to do that this year. It's because they, they heard about us. They've just, they heard about us, and they've just decided that they got to be like us, you know. So we won't we won't take any of the credit for it. So, uh, but there are a lot of churches doing that. I mean, even like Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, which is Adrian Rogers Church, is doing it this year. Um, you know, they Steve Gaines, who's the pastor there, knows me. Must have been on our blogs and websites checking out. He's probably just preaching my sermons again. You know, no, but it's it's a good feeling for many of you. That's probably something you've thought someday I'd like to do. And to think that you've done that. Here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to talk tonight about uh, the last four or five prophets. Whatever questions you have there, we'll talk about Revelation. I want to tell you on the front end, we will be short on definitive answers in Revelation. All right? So I'm not going to tell you that anybody that currently is alive is the Antichrist. I don't have that kind of knowledge. Um, And so we're not going to do that tonight. And Wayne, that was the sign from God that Wayne got called out of here so he couldn't ask that question, right? Uh, And so we'll talk about Revelation. And then you can be thinking about this, okay? At the end tonight, I want to save 10 minutes or so to talk about what you learned. What was, like, what, what did you get out of reading through the Bible in a year? It doesn't have to be, well, on November 14th, I remember this. But big picture kind of stuff, okay? What? We did this. You read a book that is the most popular book in the history of the world. Some people have said it's the most popular unread book in the history of the world. Okay, And so uh, you, you read a book that has been translated into more languages. What's the big picture kind of takeaway from that? Okay, So we can be thinking about that as we uh, move through it. All right, let's talk about the last four or five prophets in the Old Testament. What questions do you have there from... Habakkuk on. 
Habakkuk is always one of those names I like to just I just like to say it. Habakkuk. You say it in, in Hebrew, you really get the Habakkuk. Sounds like you got a really bad cold. All right. So Habakkuk, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi. Any of those questions you have, thoughts? I'll tell you that there are two or three of my favorite verses in Scripture that come in these last minor prophets. Uh, the first is in Habakkuk chapter three. Habakkuk is a different kind of book because it is the book of a pastor, a preacher, a prophet who is just asking God some questions. It's not a book of this is what God says to the people. This is God, I've got some questions. I've got some thoughts. I've got some concerns. Here they are. And he lays it out before God, and he comes to the end of that. Um, and it's Habakkuk's prayer, and he says, I heard in my heart pound. This is chapter 3, verse 16 of Habakkuk. I don't know what day it's on. I heard in my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my bones, and my legs trembled. So it's saying that I, I heard all this. I saw all this. And it it caused me really to get concerned. And then he says this, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading them. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. It just reminds you that even when stuff doesn't go your way, you walk by faith, trusting in the Lord. And that beautiful picture of even if my crops don't come up, and even if there's no food to be gathered, and even if I don't have anything left, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Reminds me of Job. When you think about the Old Testament when Job, and Job says, even if the Lord slay me, yet I will praise his name. Reminds you of uh, just prophet after prophet. Reminds you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We serve a God who will deliver us through the fire. Yet if he doesn't, we still will not bow. And the point there is, no matter what happens to me, my faith is not dependent on my circumstances is dependent on the God whom I serve. And so it's just a a great thing. In the next book, Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 16, they have this, Zephaniah is given this long description of all these these things are happening and that uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and then rebuilt. And then in verse 16 it says, On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. I love that picture. Don't get discouraged. That was a picture of discouragement, all right? Verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What I love about that verse is it gives a very personal description of the way God feels about us. That taking great delight, that quieting us with the love. And then this last verse of verse 7, the last part of verse 17 says, He'll rejoice over you with singing. In the original language, that says that he will spin in circles, screaming at the top of his lungs in music how much he loves you. We just don't usually think of God 
spinning in circles, shouting out His love for us. Now, how many of you have ever sung at the top of your lungs? Right? I, I happened today, I, for some reason, not today, a couple of days ago, for some reason, I ended up on YouTube and found a uh, link, and y'all don't tell him this, to Clifton Forbes. All right? I don't know if you know Cliff's on YouTube. Okay? He didn't want to be on YouTube. He probably doesn't know he's on YouTube, but he's on YouTube. And it's a performance he did in Germany, I guess, because he's singing in German. And we've heard Cliff sing. Right? Cliff sings at the top of his lungs with no microphone, no anything. And it's just a different expression of music. Okay? Now, you can't understand a word of what he's saying because it's in German. If you understand German, you can, but it's in German. And I, I was reading this today, and I was just thinking about what must it be like to experience God singing at the top of his lungs about his love for us, shouting while dancing in circles with joy over us. That's what Zephaniah says. On that last day, the picture he got was even through all these tribulations, God sees fit to demonstrate his love for us in that way. It's not a quiet, tame love. Reminds me of um, one of the biggest movies right now in the theaters is Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is um, part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And there's that great line in in the Narnia books when Lucy looks at Aslan, who's the Christ figure, and says, uh, he's not a, a tame lion. And the guy next to her says, no, he's not tame, but he's good. He's wild, he's fierce, but he's good. And it reminds me that God has a fierce, wild love for us that is good. All right? And then one more, turn to Malachi. Malachi, that's the Italian prophet, Malachi. Malachi, Malachi. And I, I love, we, I did this uh, a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. We talked about this this passage. Um, most preachers get up there and tell you they love that part about are you robbing God in your tithes and offerings. We'll talk about that, all right? But we're not saying what I'm talking about. Ver, chapter 4, I love how the Old Testament ends. It ends with hope. You've had, I mean, how many of you would agree that the Old Testament can get pretty discouraging at times, right? Those prophets are over and over again talking about all that Israel's done bad, all that Judah's done bad. You know, it's over and over, and it gets pretty discouraging, and then they'll give a little glimpse of hope. I love the fact that the last word of the Old Testament says, and I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, it does give that little caveat or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. But the point there is, this destruction is coming, but I'm going to give you a chance to escape. And so you have that last little part where it uh, it kind of reveals that. Yeah, And the answer to that is yes. Both. A lot of times, Carol, a lot of times they're talking about both. I mean, it, it has a dual fulfillment. It has that, that initial fulfillment of, the day of the Lord is coming on Jerusalem. We haven't repented. The temple's going to be destroyed. We're going to be wiped out. It's going to be a bad, but there's going to be a remnant that remains. At the same time, there's going to be an ultimate day of judgment, right? And all will be judged, 
believers and unbelievers alike. Um, and there will be, I mean, obviously it will be a little better for, unbe- for believe, not for unbelievers, for believers than unbelievers. Not a little, it will be a lot better. But there will be judgment there. And so I think it's, it's a dual fulfillment. And so sometimes that um, mystery is good because it reminds us that it has been completed. It's not yet completed. It's what um, scholars call the already not yet. Jesus says it is finished on the cross. It is already finished. It is not yet finished. All right, anything else Old Testament-wise? Well, and you also have to think about, yeah, when he's measuring the city, he's measuring basically the city walls and the distance there. Because we think of a city, we don't think of a walled-in place. But in their day and time, all cities would have been walled in. And so when he's measuring the height of the city, he's measuring the height of the walls, kind of. Yeah. And and there's some symbolism when it gets to those dimensions that are equal because that cube-like symbolized harmony and perfection. When you get to the New Jerusalem, it's perfect in every way. It's the same on every side, which symbolized perfection in the mind of the Jewish and then in Revelation, the Christian believers. All right? Let's go to Revelation. Since you don't have any questions about Revelation, we'll just move on. Let's go to Revelation, and I will be glad to give you no answers about everything. So what questions do you have here? Ms. Ann, you got a question, or are you just saying hello? Yeah, you find it for us. Oh, that one. We've already covered all that, right? There's a difference between foreknowledge and foreordination. And does foreknowledge come before ordination or ordination come with knowledge? Uh, I, I think it just means that just like it says in the book of, of um, Psalm, it says in Jeremiah that he knows our days before we're born. That means that he has perfect knowledge of all that has happened. And so the names written in the book of life he knew before the world was ever created. Because God has perfect knowledge of all things. And that's as good as I'm going to do. Calvinism? Calvinism comes from... They don't really point to that verse much. Because that verse seems to suggest more just foreknowledge. That this the end was known from the beginning. That John is just saying what God has revealed to him is it has always been we're moving towards this. That from creation of the world, God knew this would happen. And from the creation of the world, God knew what would happen. There, there are people, there are scholars out there now that, in a movement called open theism that say God doesn't really know. He suspects. And he's finding out like we are. Now, he'll eventually do things to bring it about. And what they would say was, no, this argues that God knew from the very beginning before the foundation of the world what that would be like. So most of them don't go to Revelation. Now, they, they would love, love that verse. But they, they would go to Ephesians and Old Testament. A lot of Calvinism is built on Old Testament. With Jacob, I love. Esau, I didn't. All right, we're going to get Leslie, and then we'll come to you, Carol. Babylon in the Old Testament is obviously a real nation. And Babylon came to symbol for the Israelites the ultimate evil. Okay? The ultimate power, the ultimate evil. And so when you move into the New Testament, for somebody like John, who's referencing 
this pagan nation and uses so much. We talked about last week that there are more references to the Old Testament and Revelation than any other New Testament book. Almost two per verse. I mean, it's that packed. That John is referring to Babylon, this whatever this entity is in the future, whether it's a geopolitical nation or it's a conglomeration of nations, whatever that is, where it comes from, is won't necessarily be called Babylon, but Babylon became symbolic of evil. Does that answer your question? Carol? Yeah. One of the things you have to keep in mind is that John is writing this letter to a particular people. And those people, what he's encouraging them is that you are part of the ones who have washed your robes and are white. You are part of the ones that have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. So you will have the inheritance that is promised here in the end. Those enemies of yours that are persecuting you are the dogs and the adulterers and the fornicators and the sorcerers, and they will have no part in the kingdom that we will be a part of. And so it's not like we're going to be in this new city and we're going to be able to look over the gate, and outside the gate are going to be people there that are these evil people. For them, it would have just symbolized that they are not in the city. On the outside uh, meant that they are not a part of this. Because he's already talked about the lake of fire. He's already talked about prepared for Satan and that they will spend eternity there. So it's just a visual symbol picture of the people who do not accept Jesus Christ don't have their their robes washed in the blood of Jesus that aren't made clean by him will not enter into this perfect place. And so it's um, in the judgment there will be pushed out. Ben, am I making sense tonight, Mr. Facebook man back there? Okay, good. Ben, ben made fun of me on Facebook last week after this session. So he did. It was harsh. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give a guarded yes. Well, here's here's where I think you have to be careful with that, Wayne. Okay. Because, yeah, because just like we talked about Babylon being considered kind of the, the evil, um, adulterous nation, the pagan nation, in their day and time, Rome was the center of all political and social everything. For them, for John, who's on the island of Patmos, writing to these believers in the seven churches, they would have seen Rome and the seven hills of Rome, that area, as the center of the world. And so it, it becomes, what you have to figure out is, and I don't think we can do this, because I don't, I think God doesn't intend for us to, is to figure out whether he means literally Rome and the seven hills, or if that is symbolic of the, the, the center of power in the world at that time. Okay? And so what that may mean is that it could be, I mean, it could be that the, the Roman Catholic Church develops a very powerful leader who leads people astray. The, the problem is, e- even with some of the failings of the Roman Catholic Church that we see today, you, you don't see them 
it would be almost preposterous to think of a leader of that con- of that church leading them in the direction that you see in Revelation. Yeah. Right. Well, well, that's the thing you have to ask is, is that center of power, where, if you were to say that, so it's, it could be that wrong, okay? But if you say, no, it's the center of power in the world, well, where is that today? It, it's here. And so is there a charismatic leader that rises? That, that's why a lot of people, um, I'm not one of them, but there were a lot of people that got real uncomfortable with some of the propaganda around Obama. There was the, there was that, there was a YouTube video where people kept proclaiming him the one. He's the one, and, and I'm that didn't come from his people. You know, it wasn't one of those that had him at the end. I approve this message, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure he was. I mean, I'm sure his campaign people loved it because it made him look good. But you know, then then there were Christians that made almost mock videos of that video, showing all these crowds doing that. So that that's why. There are some people that interpret Revelation that way. There are, the problem with that is then you're always looking for that leader. And I don't think Revelation was ever meant to um, make us consciously be looking always for these things to happen. I don't think it was meant for us to be on a scavenger hunt for the end times. I think it was meant, as John says over and over, that we stand firm where we are because we know that whatever happens, God... I mean, there's stuff happening in America right now that makes you go, uh-oh. I mean, what if birds falling out of the sky all over the place, right? There's some in Middle Tennessee today I saw. Somewhere in Middle Tennessee they had mass birds die. <laughs> that's, that's a, that, that may be a good country song right there. Let the starlings fall, right? Talk about little starlings. Um but you, know, I mean, so I mean, you could do that, and there is a guy on TV that does that. A guy named Jack Van Impey, and I don't know if you've ever watched Jack. I've mentioned him a couple of times. But Jack Van Impey will take the newspaper and go, "See, this is what I said. It says in Revelation, and this is what the newspaper says today." And you know, and his years are always changing, which means that the we're in the third bowl, and in the third bowl, the fourth bowl will be in 2012, and then 2012 goes along. We're in the second bowl, and the third bowl will be, and you just keep. Well, what that does is it brings discredit on Christianity as a whole. When we're not, our job is not to say when's it going to happen, how's it going to happen exactly. Our job is to be faithful to doing what God's called us to do now and to be ready at all times for whenever it comes. Um, It'll be interesting to see in the next few days how the world handles the bird stuff. I know. I mean, it's one of the interesting things is CNN interviewed Kirk Cameron. You know who Kirk Cameron is? Growing pains, but you know what he does today. You know what he does today? He's a big-time evangelical believer who does witnessing material. What does Kirk Cameron know about birds falling out of the sky? You know, but, you know, I mean, somebody put online goes, obviously when birds fall out of the sky, Kirk Cameron is the first person to call. But, But what they were looking for was a religious perspective on what's happening. The left behind religion. As long as it's not the catfish, we're all right. <laughs> the crappie, right? So, anyways, other questions, thoughts, revelation. Amen. Yeah. 
And what that, well, here, here's what, we've talked about the millennials, right? The amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, historical premillennial, premillennial, dispensational, premillennial, dispensational, pre-trib, premillennial, dispensational, mid-trib, pre-millennial, dispensational, post-trib. I think that covers about all of them. And then I've had that pastor that wasn't the smartest guy in the world that said to me, I'm just a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. I don't know how it is. And, you know, we you just trust that the Lord's going to do it. The problem is that, that generally, you know, C.S. Lewis is famous for a quote about demons when he says that you can go to two dangers with demons. You can focus so much on demons that you lose sight of Jesus. Or you can focus so little on demons that you forget that you're in a battle here on this earth. And you need to not be in either extreme, focused on Jesus, realizing the battle's out there. Revelation's the same way. You can focus so much on Revelation that your whole preaching, your whole teaching, your whole life, your whole study, your whole concern is what in the world is going on with the end times. And that's not good. Or you can focus so little on it that you forget we're moving towards a day and time when God is going to come back and we need to be living in accordance with His Word on a daily basis, ready for that return at any moment. The question is, why is it even there? Well, the, the book tells us a couple of reasons it's there. It's because it brings blessing to those who read it. Now, I don't understand that fully, but it says that. I think that it's there because it was a letter written to a group of seven churches that were in severe trouble and persecution, and they needed comfort to know that God was going to take care of them. I think it's there because there are church people all over the world right now that are in severe persecution, and they're not trying to figure out where on a chart we are. They just know that in the midst of persecution, God's coming back. I think it's there for that. I think we are the... Here's the crazy thing. Most of the fascination with the book of Revelation has come in the last hundred years in America. Why? Because we don't have real problems to worry about. But we can focus on stuff like that. I mean, when you're living day to day wondering whether or not you're going to be killed for your faith, you don't spend a lot of time sitting around talking about what the fourth cup is about. Right? You're talking about how would I live today. Francis Chan, who is a popular author, written Crazy Love and Forgotten God, and has recently left his church. He had a church running in the thousands and left his church and moved to L.A. and he's going to start doing some ministry there. He went on a trip recently to Asia. Well, the news got out. Francis Chan's moving to Asia. So at Passion, which was the conference Jeff went to, Jeff was telling us this today, Francis Chan was just sharing. He didn't go to Asia to find a house. He said he'd heard all these stories about people being persecuted, and so he wanted to find out if people were being persecuted. So he went to some underground churches. And he said he talked to them, and he just said to them, he asked them, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were persecuted? And they go, what do you mean? Well, when was the last time you... He goes, I don't understand. He said, when was the last time somebody um, gave you a hard time or threatened you or made fun of you or beat you or did something because you were a believer in Jesus Christ? And they said, last time, it happens all the time. Doesn't that happen to everybody? And he said, no. He said, where I come from, there are 18 churches in a 10-mile radius and if you don't like the music in one, you just move to the other. And they laughed at him 
and how can that be? Because they're just concerned with, are we even be able to meet this week, or are the police coming in and taking us away? And when that is your existence, and to the people, this the reason I say this, to the people this book was written to originally, that was their existence. If they didn't bow down to this statue of Domitian, they didn't get to do commerce in the city. They weren't given access to places. They were outcast on the highest level. And so for them, they wouldn't read this and around and go, wait, 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 stop there. Let, let's talk about it. Who do you think that Antichrist is? Who, what, what do you think the fourth bowl is? And I'm not saying that's bad to discuss that. It's in God's Word. We need to study it. But for them, what they got was, behold, I'm coming soon. And I'm coming to get you. So keep living like you're in. That's why I think it was written. It was a book of encouragement to a people in desperate need. And when you, here's what I also think is interesting. There's that part where it says, don't add or take away from this book, right? Well, I think people, some people add to this book by putting their theories into the book. I'm not saying not trying to find out what the text means. I'm talking about when you read into the book what you think is happening. That is, to me, adding to the book. And so some of the people that would say they're most scholarly in Revelation are interpreting it in a way that's reading into it what's not there. And so I think it's a book to be very careful with and to find out what the lessons were for the original audience and how that applies in principle to us today, not how that applies to Apache helicopters in Iraq. All right, anything else in Revelation? All right, let's talk about what you've learned in the last year. Those of you that have read through the Bible for the first time or some of you it's probably been the 48th time, all right? First time or first time in a while. What big picture stuff? What did you learn? What did you notice? What's new or different for you? At some point in my ministry, I'm going to do a series of sermons called Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. And just take, I'm not guaranteeing that anytime soon, but I'm just saying at some point in my 20 or 30 years, 40 years left of ministry, however long God gives me. Huh? So, uh, because, like, like, the book of Habakkuk is just an amazing message of a guy pouring out his heart to God about why do bad things happen. And God giving him some answers, and God saying he's not to live with a mystery. Yeah. That's so you can do almost all those books, except for a couple, you can do in a sermon. And even those that are longer, you can kind of summarize in a sermon. So, Miss Shirley? Yeah. Steve? There's that. There's a video out that does this, but it talks about most books are written by one or two authors in about a year, in one language, for one audience. This book was written over a few thousand years in three distinct languages, 40 different authors, three continents, and it tells one story. You know how hard it is for me to go back? With, I, I've gone back and looked at, I mentioned this Sunday, I went back and looked at a couple of my early sermons. To make them fit to what I'm preaching today would be almost impossible because it's two different, I'm in two different places. And yet the Bible has 40 different authors over thousands of years, and they all are in the same track. People talk about apparent discrepancies in Scripture. You don't find them. They're apparent because they're not really there. 
And if it wasn't a God-ordained book, there would be discrepancies and contradictions all over the place. So it's an amazing book. Leslie? I, I was watching, um, I don't even know, it was one of the late-night talk shows I was watching. I, uh, our house for this week, you know, we hadn't been in school, and, and my boys are always up early, and so I don't ever have to set an alarm during the week. Cause when school's out, my boys are... When school's out, my boys are up at 6.30. When school's in, i got to go in there and wake them up, right? And so when school's out, I don't have to worry about it. Well, yesterday, my whole family slept in. It was past 8 o'clock, every one of us. I woke up and thought, well, they must be up. And I went in, they're all asleep. And it was past, I hadn't slept that late in years, you know? And so I was wired last night. Just, you know, I'd gotten plenty of sleep. And so I had one of the late-night shows on. And they were doing actual books from Amazon. And they were showing these crazy books. And they showed a book of illustrated Bible stories they didn't tell you in Sunday school. And they were laughing about it or whatever. But there are a lot of those kind of stories that are humorous or gory or just different that you don't learn in Bible school that you see when you read through the Bible. Anybody else? There was something, I can't remember what it was now, but there was something I, I read in the chronological Bible, and I was like, wait a minute, that wasn't in the Bible last year. You know, like, that wasn't in there last time I read this, you know. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together on Wednesday night. I have really enjoyed doing this. Um, uh, Susan tells me sometimes, sometimes, Lyle, you, you act more like a professor than a preacher because you just you interact well with questions, and I enjoy doing that. That's just one of the things that God has given me that I enjoy doing. So I enjoyed you asking questions, putting me on the hot seat, uh, grilling me, whatever. I enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to do that with theology, with understanding of our basic beliefs starting in February. Next week we're going to start a three or four week series on that's not in the Bible um, or things that aren't in the Bible. Uh, so be here for that. Um, and just uh, continue. If you, you know if you started out to read last year and you didn't read, it's not too late to start this year. If you read last year and you want to read again, I suggested the Chronological Bible. I mentioned this at the beginning. We've got about five or six of them. Uh, here, they're $15 each. You can buy them tonight. Um, we can get that to you, and you can begin that. You're only three or four days behind. And I know none of you ever got three or four days behind this year, so uh, that shouldn't be too bad for you to make up. All right? I think the reading so far actually goes a little faster in the chronological Bible. Uh, it's a, a little, I mean, not. you're still spending 10 to 15 minutes a day, but seems to go a little faster. So. All right. We're done.